Viv, and you're listening to the What Gives Podcast. Today I'm talking to Jazz Kerr from Farm School NYC, and I'm really excited about this conversation because, you know, I have pipe dreams of homesteading in a city, and recently I've been looking at my own food and where it comes from and really thinking about my own health, and so I'm really curious about the topic of urban agriculture. Um, I'm really excited to talk about Farm School because they really focus on things like food access and land access and then urban ag. Um, which is really important, especially in urban landscapes and communities, because I can sit here with all of the questions I just rattled off, um, but I'm coming from a really privileged place and not everyone has that same access as I do. So um, I'm still holding space for my concerns about my health and my dreams, but also thinking about my community's health as well. So Jazz, if you could talk about Farm School NYC a little bit and introduce yourself and all the things. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be on the podcast. My name is Jazz Kerr. I welcome all pronouns and I'm the Chief Communications Officer at Farm School. Um, and I'm really excited that you're wanting to learn more about urban agriculture because I think it's something that people are getting aware of but not fully able to dive deep into and just want more context and want more content and information about it. So I'm excited that you're doing this for your listeners. So. I can tell you a little bit about how I got started at Farm School, but I'll also just explain the mission of Farm School. Um, And so the mission at Farm School NYC is to train New York City residents in urban agriculture. And we believe that the training that we provide will lead to self-reliant communities being built and increased racial and social justice. So social and racial justice are at the core of our work. Um, And something fun about me is that my journey to Farm School is a bit unique. Most of the people in our community, they were all, a lot of them, students. So they started in farm school and then just wanted to continue on. Um, I was similar to you, just like thinking about food and how I fit into it and what do I want to do about it. Joined the newsletter and saw that they were hiring. And I said, yep, that's me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join farm school. And so I've been working at farm school for about three years. That's amazing. And actually, before we even dive in, I always like to ask my guests what the immediate call to action is. And this could be like a need or an ask from the greater community or, you know, ideas that you want us to explore or listen to as we go through our conversation. That's helpful. Thank you. So I think explorational themes, I hope that listeners are taking the time while we're speaking to reflect on their own connections to green space, community, land and food. Um, and I think that's something unique about farm school, like the way we engage in our, our work is that we encourage people to reconnect and reimagine their connections to land, air and water. So I'm hoping that this podcast episode will allow people to start that journey and that reflection process um, in thinking about their own connections and possibly improving it however is accessible to them. Um, And then for calls to action, I would ask the community to consider donating to Farm School. We have something called a gift economy, which I can explain more about later on. But yes, thinking about supporting this important work is my immediate call to action. Yeah, I think exploring our relationship to land and food is so interesting because we are so disconnected and I don't even know where to start. Like I like I myself have a backyard, so I have a green space, right? And I have the resources, um, but really getting to start feels 
really daunting to me. And so I would love if you could talk to us about what urban agriculture is and why it's becoming so important and so popular and feels really pressing right now. To start, urban agriculture is essentially what it sounds like, growing food in an urban space. Um, and, you know, when you hear those two words, they're usually thought of in opposition, urban and then ag. But there's actually a long and deep history of urban agriculture. So I think that it's something that is popular right now, but it has been pressing for a long time. And I like to explain it from the perspective of people who've been doing this work in their communities for a very long time. Um, and so one of our founders named Karen Washington coined this term food apartheid. Um, and so simply put, it's the intentional lack of food in racialized and marginalized communities. Most of the time when you hear people talk about food access, you'll hear the term food desert instead. And so food apartheid talks about the intentionality in the ways that these nutrient dense and like culturally relevant and just like healthful foods are not showing up in um, our communities. And I think that's important because community gardeners were fighting food apartheid with their gardens. Um, so they were working to grow culturally relevant and fresh foods in areas that couldn't access or afford them. And so to me, urban agriculture has its roots in social justice, um, providing food and showing value in our communities. And so I hope that answered your question, but essentially it's growing food in the urban space. Yeah. Yeah, can you actually dive a little bit more into the intentionality piece? Because I know that I had some of these misunderstandings before, right? Like when you were talking about food desert. Um, and for me, it seems like, you know, a symptom of building a city or an urban planning miss or, you know, the idea that it, this is a modern issue. So yeah, if you could talk about that uh, intentionality piece a little bit more. For sure. So it's actually discriminatory planning. So it's not just like an oversight, it's that communities are put in locations where they are intentionally disenfranchised. And so if you look at redlining, that's where you'll see a lot of disinvestment that's planned and you'll see a lot of communities, like you'll see less access to trees. You you can put maps of um, green cover, of food deserts, of like there's a lot of compounding issues facing communities that have been historically disenfranchised. And so it's talking about the ways that this is planned. It's not accidental or naturally occurring. So a desert is something that happens naturally. It's like a, it's its own landscape um, versus apartheid is something that's man-made and like invented by people trying to create imbalance. And I think this actually goes perfectly into my next question, which is, I know that farm schools programs and curriculum is rooted in BIPOC land stewardship. And I just want to ask, you know, what is that? And what are the characteristics and values of BIPOC land stewardship? I'm so happy you ask. So tell me what comes to mind when you hear the word farmer. So I'm thinking, um, so the first thing is this commercial for orange juice and it's like set in a farm. I think it's either in Florida or California. Um, it's usually a white person um, with a really big green space in a rural area <laughs> with a pitchfork. <laughs> yes, that is exactly the image that comes to most people's minds. It's a middle-aged, older white man, expansive plot of land, small red house. Like I know the exact thing I'm thinking of. Um, 
And in my opinion, that's not what agriculture actually looks like. And it's also not the vision we have for agriculture. So oftentimes, and the climate is actually spot on too. So oftentimes people to learn how to grow food will have to go to a climate that's one, not our own in New York and spend lots of time and money to try and get the skills to grow food. So you're, it's inaccessible because you're losing time, money, and you're not even learning how to grow in your own climate. So our founders had that experience and wanted to create a school that had addressed all of those needs. So they wanted to make sure that working folks and parents and people who had maybe different educational needs could engage in farm school and that it would be relevant to our climate because we are not in Florida. <laughs> um, and so our founders came together after a retreat and dreamt up farm school. Um, and so oftentimes when they would go out and go to farms, they'd speak to the farm owners. So these middle-aged, like the, the vision that you got, and then they would look on the farm and see that it was all black indigenous people of color working the land and getting paid pretty poorly across the board. So it's, uh, the language is intentional because we're trying to uplift the people who are actually in relationship to and on the land, not just the person who owns the land. And we're trying to encourage people to build those connections to the land. And so you're actually creating a stewardship rather than just worker or owner uh, relationship. So to define it <laughs> in a pretty bow, I would say that Black, Indigenous, and people. BIPOC land stewardship is important because it talks about the relationship to land and it talks about the people who are actually doing the work. And oftentimes farm workers are, or people tending to crops are overworked, underpaid, exploited, unprotected. And so we are hoping to build a future where there's honor, agency, and dignity in stewarding food and the land. And that we are also replenishing the ecosystem and using growing practices that have been used by indigenous communities. So that's often called right now permaculture, regenerative agriculture, but just showing that as a person on land, you should be contributing to and caring for the ecosystem. And I can tell you a story about this. Actually, when I first got hired at farm school, I was a quote unquote storyteller. And I asked students to tell me their stories. And one that has always stuck with me from the first week that I joined farm school was um, a black woman who I spoke to. She told me that while she was working on gardens, people would say like, we don't have to do that anymore. Our, our slavery days are over. And she was like trying to show that caring for the land and being on the land is not something to feel shame of uh, anymore. And so kind of like reconnecting to the land in ways that are empowering rather than forceful and exploitative is a really deep part of our work. As you were talking, it reminded me of an episode I did with Thousand Currents, which is a really great organization that funds really great movements in the global south. And one of the movements that they fund is climate justice, along with land and food sovereignty. But it really got me thinking about the history of land and agriculture and how a lot of the global south is, you know, places with the most abundant agriculture and healthiest foods that thrive and orig originate and a lot of the agricultural practices um, where it comes from. So I think there's an interesting tie there because, you know, when we're talking about who is actually in the land now versus who used to cultivate and protect those lands, I think there's a really interesting history there. And I wonder, how do you tie that together? Like, how do you teach about that in your courses? Yeah, I think I think what you're asking is how bread gets made. So like, what are we actually doing in the classes? 
and I can talk about our educational approach because that's also pretty unique. So we use popular education models, meaning that a lot of the time people are coming from different cultures and diverse backgrounds where they're being given information and like cues. And so in Western and academic spaces, it's pretty much the way that education goes is there's like a power imbalance where there's a teacher or lecturer pouring knowledge into presumably empty vessels. And we know that's just not true. Everyone's coming from a wealth of lived experience. And we think that they have things to add to the curriculum that um, like you shouldn't be silent in your education. So popular education basically means that everyone is coming with their own needs and their own experience and adding to the curriculum and adding to the learning experience and then leaving with tools and knowledge that will impact and improve their communities. So that's a big part of our educational model is that we're asking you to bring your full self to the classroom. And then another piece of that is that it's place-based. So we go to a variety of different sites. We're not only at urban farms or urban gardens. We're everywhere in between. Uh, And that allows people to see the different needs of each growing space, the different requirements and the different kind of like experience levels. If you want to get started, you can see, okay, this takes less experience and less time, but a lot more money or, you know, so you can, you can kind of choose your own adventure after you've seen the, the wide variety of how urban agriculture actually looks across New York City. And that being said, that also means we don't have our own space. We know that there are so many people doing this work that not always is it important to just start a new thing. So we're plugging into the people who've been doing this work, been doing it well, and trying to just support them and allow people who are excited about it to have avenues into it. And really think about our ancestors and think about like, what were the people before us doing and how can we carry and uplift the good parts of that work? How do we, how do we add to legacy rather than just thinking about like, what do I want? Yeah, so I'm sure you can't really give us, you know, all of the course knowledge in one question, but I would love if you can talk about how urban agriculture relates to social, economic, and racial justice. I know you've mentioned those things earlier, but how does urban agriculture tie in with those um, broader issues? So in terms of racial, uh, economic, and social justice, all of our injustices are connected and overlapping, and all of our liberation is too. Um, And so I think a quote that we like is from Malcolm X about revolution being based in the land. Um, And I also just think about the ways that we value nature. And I think that's reflected in the ways that farm workers are paid. I think that's reflected in the ways that cities are planned. All of these intentional decisions are um, rooted in largely injustice. So these systems are working the way that they're intended to and marginalizing and disenfranchising the people that they feel don't deserve protection. And so by valuing these things more heavily and by creating systems and structures that uplift and rebuild and regenerate, we're showing that there is value in this and that justice is possible if you invest energy, time, treasure, whatever you have to give, if you invested in creating systems that work for our people, for our planet, that we are building towards justice and liberation. Yeah, I can see how it does tie into so many aspects of our life, even just like community wise. But like we were talking before, what we were putting on the table at home and if we're able to access healthy food, what does our life look like? 
you know, we may have more time, um, which really lends itself to having more time to learn and cultivate even more healthy practices and truly thrive and build a community. So yeah, thank you for that. I also just want to say like at any point in getting food from the farm to your table, there are people along the way. You have to start thinking about the way that these people are being treated. And it's more than just the nutrients in your food and like how it makes you feel, but also like who is along that food chain and how does it make them feel too? Yeah. And I love that you said that because, you know, the Japanese, they give thanks before their meals and their thanks um, really acknowledges every part of how the food is made and how it got to the table. Um, and there's just so many BIPOC traditions like that. And, you know, this includes how we put your meat, like when, you know, you want to think about the pain that livestock goes through and how we treat that life um, before it gets to our table. I think so many cultures do look into that and how it translates into our food, right? Because um, there is a transfer of chemicals and energy that happens when we eat poorly raised livestock. So I love that you talk about that piece too, about the people along the way. But even just thinking about the animals and the plants and how we're treating them and the land um, along the way. So I think there's definitely just something about the energy that passes there um, and how that affects our health. Um, and it's not always so great. So Jazz, I would love to hear some of the stories of your students and some of the agricultural partners that you've met along the way, because I really want to understand the community that Farm School has been able to build. That is such a great question. And yes, it's so true that we can't do this work alone. Solidarity is one of the like key values at Farm School. Um, so yeah, between justice, diversity, growth, learning, abundance, transparency, all of these things cultivate into our work. And a big piece of that is like solidarity and thinking about how do we move with people. Um, so I'll tell you two stories of people on the staff that are really inspiring to me and then maybe one or two from community partners. So Bianca Luego, um, they use they, them pronouns. They're a student member who turned into a staff member and they started Comida Pal Pueblo in Bushwick. It's a food distribution uh, network. And so that is a really cool story because in the midst of the pandemic, they were moving, I would say tons of food um, throughout their community. And they also were a part of Moore Street Garden. So they're just really embedded in getting food to people and just their community, uh, making it intergenerational, which is something really important to us too. Uh, so that's a great example. And then another is Francis Perez Rodriguez. And Francis was also a student, current staff, who's our, who, they're both in like co everyone in programs is co-leading our programs revisioning. So right now we're taking an intentional pause for the whole year to redo our curriculum, program structure, all of that. But Francis is leading our work with the black ecosystem, the black farmer ecosystem. And so the black farmer ecosystem is a connection, a collection of about six groups who support black farmers from education to um, like tactical resources to funding. So looking at all the reasons why black farmers often fail and then supplementing all of those reasons. But currently there's only less than one, I think one or 2% of black farmers in the whole United States. And so that's a big issue that we're trying to solve in, in community.
Um, and then if I could do a few more shout outs. We are in deep partnership with Rocksteady Farm. They are in Millerton, New York. They are a queer and trans owned farm. Everyone on their staff is queer and a lot of our students leave farm school and then wanna practice their hands-on skills that they learn at, in a bigger space where they're doing more production. So they go up to Rocksteady and do their pollinate program. Um, and then from there, students are able to, so there's kind of like a little pathway to, to land access. Um, and then we've had two students who've done, we've had multiple students do exciting things, but two that I wanna uplift right now, one is Sweet Freedom Farm, and they work with um, formerly incarcerated folks to try and help them regain access to the land. And then another is Catalyst Collaborative Farm, which just started, and they're helping people kind of incubate their own pro uh, products and their queer and trans and BIPOC-led collective. So I think everyone in our community in some capacity is trying to build collectivism and still center justice and just uplift the community in whatever ways that they feel most accessible to. And that has just looked like so many different and amazing projects that have emerged from farm school. So if you have time, look up Sweet Freedom, look up Catalyst, look up Rocksteady, Comida Pop Pueblo, and Rise and Root Farm. That's where a lot of our um, founders currently farm. What's really cool about Sweet Freedom, Catalyst, and Rise and, and sorry, Rocksteady, is that they're all in a triangle within maybe two miles. So they, and Aini Herb Farm is one of our facilitators, Amara, who leads it. So they're all relatively in the same location. They can share tools, they can do work days together. So they're really collaborative because they're all in the same stretch of land. Well, I just want to say congratulations because what you're doing is really very hard. And I'm sure all the nonprofits that are listening can really relate in trying to be brave and how they do leadership and staff and working together now because nonprofits, we sometimes feel like we work in crisis. And when you're in crisis, you usually revert to the models that you're used to. And those are the models that we were taught in um, capitalism, right? Like the hierarchy structures. Um, so it's, it's brave. It's hard and frustrating work, I know. So congratulations. Um, and I would love if you could tell us uh, or tell me, you know, someone like me with a pipe dream of homesteading, um, how we can get involved in urban agriculture in our communities. Um, something that I'm personally proud of is how we navigate our resources. So the gift economy is really cool because it means that nobody will be barred entry from farm school for lack of like money. Um, and so we have a sliding scale uh, payment process where we ask people to contribute what they can, what feels comfortable to them um, on a monthly basis. And the gift economy also means that people with more resources will be paying it forward to cover for the folks that maybe don't have as much. And it means that people can give gifts of different types. So people have fundraised on our behalf, people have given gifts of tech, of time, um, done teach-ins for us. So there's just so many ways that our community continues to show up for us. And we just named that the gift economy because we want people to explore ways outside of capitalism and outside of like extractive systems that they're able to be in community and still show the value of the things that they're receiving. Um, 
So that's one thing that I'm really excited about. Another is that we've graduated over 300 people or like over 300 people have gone through our programs. Um, and we're excited about this revisioning because it means that we'll be building up the depth and the impact and the strength of the program so that more people can take their impacts and reach even further. Um, and then I think the last thing that I'll highlight is just our staff. Like I said before, we're in a really big transition period and I'm proud of us for even being on the brave journey of trying to do non-traditional and non-hierarchical leadership. Uh, it's scary to not fit in, to be around in a square hole. I don't know if that's the phrase, but um, I'm excited about all the ways that we carry our values and our approach through every aspect of the work and what that means for the world. Cool. Yeah, the community sounds really connected and more importantly, growing. So um, I want to talk about how people at home who are listening that may not have access to urban spaces or green spaces, how can we get involved? I would say look around, um, see what is nearest to you. People are really friendly, even after post Panini. Um, so I would say plug into what's already existing and start local. Um, if you live in a city, it's probably easier because there's probably like four community gardens on your block that you didn't know of and you just walked by. Um, and if you are at home in a less urban setting, I would say start online actually. Um, look at what we're doing, look at what our partners are up to and see if there's anything you can replicate. I would say come down for work days. Farmers need help. Farmers need people with hands excited to learn. And so figure out maybe a weekend and look into the events at different farms and see what you can actually attend and how you can bring friends so that you can do this in community even if you're not that close to one. And where can we find farm school? And yeah, I just want you to reiterate all the things that we can do and do for and with farm school as we close out the episode. Thank you. So we are online at farmschoolnyc.org and we are on all the social medias. We just got a TikTok, very exciting stuff. Um, so you can see our link tree in our Instagram or any of our bios. Um, we have a monthly, now it's going to be every other month newsletter that goes out to keep folks in the loops of when our public programs open. So the um, citywide or the cohort based model usually has a group of around 30 to 45 students that go throughout the year um, with various courses that follow the growing season. And then we have public courses open to anyone. They're usually about six weeks to two months where you can just come in. Sometimes you get to build things, but just find uh, something that you're excited to build a skill on and then you can plug in there. So those are the two types of programming that we usually offer. Our cohort model is on pause until 2025, but we will have public programs all year. It'd be great if folks could consider donating. If you know folks at resources who would love to give to farm school, this is amazing work and I'd love to talk to you more about it. So you can reach out to me, jazz at farmschoolnyc.org via email. And our donate info is all in the website as well. So it's farmschoolnyc.org slash donate. Awesome, thanks Jazz. Before I close out, um, what is one piece of wisdom that you can share with us that embodies the mission of 
this work and, you know, your life? Study your place in the food system. To study your place in the food system, I think that you've already started this process. You said, I am resourced. I know that I can access this food, but I want to have a more active role in the food system. So you're already thinking about the food that you're eating. You're already thinking about the way that it's grown. And you're already thinking about the ways that you're disconnected from it. And so I think that a lot of people, when they begin to study their place in the food system, they just think about like, well, I want to jump all the way to one part or another instead of thinking about how the food system looks and where there are breaks or where there are places that need to be supported. So I think the first step should be reflecting, the second step should be supporting, and then the next step should be actually getting involved and thinking through where is the community that I can cultivate with this because nobody does good work without a community. And then thinking about how do I actually improve the food system, not just jump into it. Ooh, okay. That's really good advice because I find myself easily impassioned by a new project, but having a really hard time sustaining good practices. And I think what you're saying really lends to a more holistic, therefore sustainable approach to exploring this work. So, um, so thanks for that. And Jazz, this has been really cool to talk about, and I'm really excited to see the growth of y'all's work and seeing urban farms pop up everywhere to close the gap on food access, but also empowering communities to take back their health. And yeah, so I'm just really thankful to have connected with you, and thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Same here. Thank you for these amazing and insightful questions. Um, I will just give you this last little, little nugget is that I have learned also that it's not my role to be a gardener. I support gardeners wholeheartedly and I love the pollinators. So I did a beekeeping apprenticeship recently. So even if you're not going to be on the ground and on the land, you'll find your place in in the ecosystem. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with your friends. For more information, head to our website at whatgivesproject.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode.